0: Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. And we will be taking a look this morning at Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 to 13. Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 to 13. If you're able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word this morning, starting in Matthew chapter 25, verse one. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish And five were wise, for when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, "Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out." But the wise answered, saying, "Since there will be not enough, not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves." And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. To be something or someone in name only means or indicates that the title you have used or the quality used to describe that person or thing is inaccurate because they don't actually possess the qualities suggested by that title, that quality, or that name. Let me explain with a few examples. Many of us probably have friends in name only. Think Facebook, think social media. If you've been coming here for a little while, you already know how I feel about Facebook and social media, these scourges in human communication. But if you still have Facebook or you still have them, you probably, on your account, have friends that, you've never commu- that you never communicate with or spend any time with in real life. The only thing you know about these people is what they post, which probably isn't true anyway, because most of the stuff we put on social media isn't. You might not even recognize these people if you were walking, if you passed them on the street. They aren't true friends, They're friends in name only. Another example might be emperors and kings in many of the developed countries across the world today, who, while maintaining the title of king or emperor, they don't actually have any power. They don't exercise or exert any real policy-making or authoritative power-making over their respective countries. They are, in fact, emperors and kings in name only. And lastly, not to get political or anything like that, it's just that I heard this phrase used not too long ago. I heard the word rhino used to describe a certain type of elected official in the American political system. Now, seeing that our television feeds and news cycles are oftentimes dominated by whatever's happening to our, in, the, in our neighbors in the South, many of us probably know the basic governmental structure They operate on a two-party system, and the two parties are called Republican and Democrat. And each of these parties holds to and promotes their own particular political brand. They push their preferred ideologies, their preferred economic strategies, and within each party, there are senators and governors who either hold to the principles of that party with a tenacious conviction and or there are others who while maintaining the name don't fit with, don't align with or don't agree with their party's stance on a variety of policies and viewpoints. There are at times Republicans who look, act and talk and sound more like Democrats. And there are at times Democrats who look and act and talk and sound more like Republicans. And these are oftentimes looked down upon and insulted by their own party. The term "rhino," for example, is a, or is an example of such disparagement. It's a snub leveled against those Republicans who look, and act, and sound more like Democrats. The term "rhino" is actually an acronym that means Republican in name only. These, they say, are the ones who cling to and wave the Republican banner knowing that in their particular region, in their particular state, it's the Republican Party that amasses the most votes when it's election time. But while they wave the Republican flag, in practice, their policies and their legislative decisions oftentimes align more with the Democratic platform. This term rhino, and I guess if the shoe's on the other foot, you could say dino, repeatedly claims to be A member of their party even as everyone around them says otherwise. They are really members of the opposite party masquerading as members of their current party. And as I thought about this phenomenon of the many people who for reasons beyond my understanding ascribe to themselves certain titles without actually believing in or living out or possessing those qualities, who don't actually have the commitment or the conviction or the principles that are suggested by the title they apply to themselves, I thought nowhere is this curious occurrence and phenomenon more evident and more observable than when it comes to Christianity. At least that's how it seems to me. I mean, how many people is it are there who claim some connection to Jesus Christ, some connection to the church, to Christianity in general, but who, when you get right down to it, are really fundamentally atheists, practical unbelievers who might describe themselves as Christians or as children of the Lord who say, Jesus loves me, I am saved. But it's not because they've repented of their sin. It's not because they've turned to Jesus in faith and in trust and are now born again as a result by the grace of God. No, it's because they've got some nebulous relationship. They assume with Jesus. They think, I'm a good person right when you you get right down to it. I'm pretty good. And therefore, me and Jesus are great. Isn't it amazing how many of us think that about ourselves? I'm a good person. I do good things. I treat people well. I'm generous. I'm kind. My heart and my intentions are noble. But here's the biblical truth, not one of us on our own, apart from real, true, saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ are, when you get down to it, good people at heart. Our natural bent is to selfishness, to pride, to arrogance, to self-centeredness, to treating other people well insofar as it benefits us, human beings, all of us, me, you, you, me, we are all masters at saying nice flowery things to someone's face while at the same time thinking murderous thoughts, hateful thoughts about them in our minds. At the very same time, Holding bitterness in our hearts, gossiping and slandering about them in our personal circles. And yet, even though every single one of us does this time and time and time and time again, we still think I'm pretty nice. No, we are not. Without Christ, without the Holy Spirit renewing our hearts, you aren't nice. I'm not nice. And if you are a Christian, you know how hard it is to obey Jesus when you have the Holy Spirit in you. Without it, it's impossible. We aren't righteous without true saving faith. We aren't people of peace. We are not friends of God, but are instead enemies of God if we are not truly saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Christ alone. But how many, I guess, in keeping with the acronym, can we call CRINOS? Christians in name only. Christians in name only populate church chairs across the world. How many of us, how many people might, if a survey comes their way, and there's a little box that said, check your religion, might check off Christian, When in fact, they have no real concern or desire to live for Jesus because they haven't been born again by grace through faith in Christ. And this is nothing new. This has been something church leaders have been writing about at length for thousands of years. This is something pastors have been crying out against for thousands of years. To wake up those who might profess some connection to Jesus with their lips, but their hearts remain as hard as stone. Who don't truly repent and turn to Him in faith. Who don't truly care to live for Jesus in obedience. Who don't really possess genuine faith. Here are a few examples. One of my favorites, a great Puritan pastor, writing over four centuries ago, wrote to those in his own day saying this, pleading and exhorting them with these words, quote, "'Men may have atheistic hearts without atheistic heads. Their reason may defend the notion of a deity or a God while their hearts are empty of any affection, to that deity. And how can one tell if the heart is empty of affection to God even as the mouths profess Him? Actions. Actions are a greater discovery of a principle or a reality than words. The testimony of works is louder and clearer than that of your words and the state of men's hearts must be measured by what they do rather than simply by what they say there might be a mighty distance between the tongue and the heart. Those, therefore, are more deservedly termed atheists who acknowledge a God and walk or live or behave as if there was none. Listen to this. this is, a sense of God in the heart will burst out in the life. A sense of God in the heart will burst out burst out in the life. Where there is no reverence for God in the life, it is easily concluded that there is even less in the heart. I love that line. A sense of God in the heart, meaning true saving faith will inevitably burst forth in our lives. Those who truly love and are loved by Jesus Christ, those who grasp To some degree, the depths of his compassion and mercy upon us miserable wretches. Who in some way sense the greatness of the love that he has poured out upon all who believe in his name who recognize that if it had not been for his generosity, every single one of us would be left to die in our sin. We would be left to die and suffer in eternal darkness and distress. But scriptural witness is this, God shows his love for us. God shows his love for those who believe in his name in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And how could such love, when understood, when appreciated, when it fills your heart, how could it do anything other than burst forth in your life? And 150 years ago, another faithful pastor, J.C. Ryle, made numerous calls. It was actually a staple in his ministry and preaching over and over and over again as he taught to those in his day who thought that church membership or that being baptized or that taking communion was what set someone right with God. They thought that being in the right church set one right with God. Men like Ryle spent so much of their time trying to wake up those Christians in name only from their self-deception, saying things like this, and I quote, For what purpose do men suppose that ministers are sent to them? Is it merely to wear a surplice? That's the long robe that certain denominations would wear. In ours, would would it simply be to wear a suit and read services and preach a number of sermons? Is it merely to administer sacraments and officiate at weddings and funerals? Is it merely to make a comfortable living and be in a respectable profession? No, indeed, ministers are sent forth for other ends than these. We are sent to turn men from darkness to light. We are sent to turn men from the power of Satan unto God. We are sent to persuade men to flee from the wrath to come. We are sent to draw men from the service of the world to the service of God. And listen, we are sent to awaken the sleeping. We are sent to awaken the careless and by all means to save some. And again, Ryle says in another sermon, God says of every living person who is not a real, thorough, genuine, decided Christian, be he high or low, be he rich or poor, old or young, he is spiritually dead. And this, in this, as in everything else, God's words are correct. God calls to them, the spiritually dead, continually by mercies, by afflictions, by ministers, by his word, but they don't hear his voice, and the Lord Jesus Christ mourns over them. He pleads with them, sends them gracious invitation, knocks at the door of their hearts, and they do not regard it. The crown and glory of their being, that precious jewel, their immortal soul is being seized and plundered and taken away and they're utterly unconcerned. The devil is carrying them away day after day along the broad road that leads to destruction and they allow him to make them his captives without a struggle. And Ryle will repeatedly ask, is that you? Are you spiritually dead or are you truly alive in Christ? Are you one who has a real, thorough, genuine, decided Christian faith? And permit me one more Ryle quote. He says this in another sermon. Think of how miserably defective your hopes and your pleas will look in the hour of your death and in the day of judgment. Whatever men may say of their own goodness while they are strong and healthy, they'll find but little to say of it when they're sick and dying. Whatever merit they may see in their own works while they are here in the world, they will discover none in them when they stand before the bar of Christ. The light of that great day of Assize, that word means the high court, will make a wonderful difference in the appearance of their doings. It'll strip off all the tinsel. It'll shrivel up the complexion. It'll expose the rottenness of many a dead deed that we now call good. Their wheat will prove nothing but chaff. Their gold will be found nothing but dross. Listen, millions of so-called Christian actions will turn out to be to have been utterly defective and graceless. End quote. And why is that? Why will millions of so-called Christian actions and millions of so-called claims to a good heart turn out to be utterly defective? Because the hearts of many professing christians will on the on the last day be revealed as lacking true saving faith they'll be exposed as those devoid of the holy spirit because underneath it all while many look the part many of us look the part on the outside the life and the grace of god is absent from our hearts because they never truly turned to Jesus in faith and in repentance. They never truly believed in his name and bowed their knee to him as Lord of their lives. And as we come to the parable of the 10 virgins, this is the primary warning that Jesus is giving to us. This is the big idea right here. Christians in name only will not be admitted to the wedding feast, to the eternal kingdom, but will instead, unless they truly believe in his name, finally and forever be shut out from the perfect joy of dwelling in Christ's presence for eternity future. So watch, prepare, wake up. That's the warning. So as we come to Matthew 25 and the parable of the ten virgins in verses 1 to 13, let's draw out from it a number of lessons and exhortations and warnings found therein. But let's start by remembering the context. Jesus here is still seated on the Mount of Olives after leaving Jerusalem from his series of condemnations given to the Pharisees. And here, he is still answering the question that has been asked of him back in chapter 24, verse three. You remember the question? Tell us, is so the disciples bringing this to him privately. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And so the answer that Jesus gives to that question spans chapter 24 and chapter 25. In chapter 24, Jesus gave, set out a general timeline. He set out in a, a general order of events and then concluded by urging the 12 and by extension, urging all of us to be students of the times and students of the seasons. Also, to rest in and hope in the certainty of these facts, there is coming a day when Christ will return in the clouds to gather up his church from the world. There is coming a day after that when he will return to establish his millennial kingdom and as believers, take heart. And so as we live in these days of wars and rumors of wars, of hatred and of persecution, of love growing cold and the rise and prevalence of false teachers, all working and laboring to lead people away from Christ, those who truly love Jesus and know how it all ends, we have no fear. We live these days filled with hope and filled with peace and filled with confidence because we know how everything ends this is what it means to live in the last days many of us like to think of it in terms of chronological time only but when we hear about life in the last days it's not in the first place a time marker but a reminder to us that the decisive victory has already been won Christ has, at the cross, defeated sin and defeated death and defeated Satan, defeated it all. And Now we are called to live in this world heralding that news, announcing to people there is coming a day when the victor will return, when our great general will come back. That's our task, to go into the world and announce the victory that's already happened. So we live as those who know the victory already occurred. That's what it means for us to be living in the last days. For this reason, Paul wrote to the Thessalonian believers about these events, and he said to them, as you consider all of this in 1 Thessalonians 4, encourage one another with these words. And even more, encourage one another and build one another up with these truths. With the glorious truth that, as he says in 1 Thessalonians 5, God has not destined us, meaning those who truly believe in Christ, for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus who died for us so that whether we are awake, whether we are alive, or whether we are asleep, whether we are dead, we might live with him. And not only did Jesus implore the disciples to be students of the time and people of hope and confidence in these difficult days, but he also warned them and he warned us numerous times in chapter 24 and then again in chapter 25 verse 13, stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord will return. That's in verse 42 of chapter 24. And then again in verse 44 of chapter 24, you must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Then again in verse 50, the master of the servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour he does not know. And the same warning sums up and concludes the parable of the 10 virgins in chapter 25, verse 13. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This is a major exhortation of this parable watch stay alert and for the true genuine born again believer this parable points you and fixes your eyes on the great joy that awaits you as you wait now in a prepared state for the arrival of the groom our lord jesus christ For the Christian in name only, however, the parable points to your final sorrow, your final grief, when the door to the banquet is shut and you are excluded from the eternal celebration. In the end, those are the only two options. You are in the wedding feast or you are out of it. So the parable begins in verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like. That then there is connected to the verses that come before it. Jesus had just illustrated that the return of the master, the, the picture of the return of a master on a day when his servants do not expect him. And there are two servants that are spoken of. There is the servant who remained faithful who discharged the duties that were given to him by the master while he awaited the master's return. And when the master returned and found that servant faithful, the text says that the, the servant was blessed and set over all the master's possessions in verse 47. But then there was a wicked servant also who said to himself, well, the master's delayed. And while he still ascribed to himself the title of servant of the master... He lived disobedient and didn't do what the master had set out for him to do and this so-called servant will be upon the master's surprise return the text tells us cut in pieces and put with the hypocrites and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this parable of the 10 virgins it reiterates a similar point with a different illustration. So then, or in the days of the master's return, the kingdom of heaven will be like, or the kingdom of heaven can be compared to, it'll be similar to, it can be thought of in this way. Like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. In this day, the virgin was the externally chaste woman. And each of these ten virgins adorned themselves with the festal and celebratory garments that were proper for such an occasion. And as we will soon see, the parable tells us that five of these virgins were wise and five of them were foolish. But if you just looked at them, you couldn't tell which was which by their external appearance, because they all wore the same clothing, and they all carried their lamps, and they all professed a desire to accompany the bridegroom on his procession to the wedding feast. There are many who look the part, who know how to be Christian when you're hanging around Christians, who know how to use the proper church lingo, who know how to act around those that they see at church, and so they appear to externally follow Christ, but their hearts are unrenewed. Christ likeness is not a priority. Remember, God in the heart will burst out in the life. And not just in your life on a Sunday morning or on a Tuesday night Bible study, but in your whole life. Now, for many of us in our day, We like to schedule things down to the minute. If we book a meeting for 10.15 a.m., guess what time we expect that meeting to commence? 10.14, if you're a man, 10.10, right? 10.15 is generally our expectation. We want that meeting to take place at the agreed-upon time. There's a lot of people whose blood boils (laughs) when others are late. But much of the world, both in the past and today, don't operate like that. We've blocked everything down to the point where it's like, I'll meet you at 10.07. Like, we get that specific. But much of the world doesn't operate today. For example, we know that the worship service here at Winona Gospel Church starts at 10 a.m., or at least I think we know... While some of y'all like to amble in late, most are here at or before 10 a.m. But when we used to lead mission trips to Mexico with some of the people here, the church leaders that were there told us the service started at 10 a.m., but that was only in theory. It was 10 a.m. in name only. Because while we arrived for the 10 a.m. start, it didn't actually begin until the people arrived. And quite often, the people would arrive sometimes three hours later. And then the service would take another three hours on top of that. The same is true for the ancient Near East. Contextually, for this parable, rarely, if ever, did anything start on time. And a wedding feast rarely, if ever, began at the appointed time. And so anyone awaiting the arrival of the bridegroom would have to make take that into consideration and make the appropriate provisions in case he arrived a lot later than expected. So these ten virgins, we might call them bridesmaids, would be waiting at or near the house of the bride for the bridegroom to arrive for the man who was about to become a husband to arrive to solemnize the wedding. And after all of the ceremonies, he would then escort the bride back to his home along with a loud, boisterous, celebratory procession illuminated by these lamp-bearing bridesmaids for for the wedding feast. And as they went, as they proceeded back to the house of the groom... Friends and family and acquaintances would see the lights and the lanterns and the celebration, and they would join the parade, knowing it's begun. They would join along the way to attend the wedding feast and the festivities. And so, these these ten virgins, these ten bridesmaids, they really only had one duty keep their lamps prepared and ready to light the way to the feast. But as we see next, not every bridesmaid took this responsibility seriously. As Jesus said in verse 2, look at it. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. Five of these bridesmaids were foolish and five were wise. The word here, foolish, means literally stupid. It's the word that has morphed over time into our English word, moron. It's not a nice word. It's not a flattering word. To be foolish here means to be devoid of wisdom, to be devoid of good sense and sound judgment. And the word is in the imperfect tense, meaning that they kept on being foolish. It wasn't just a one-time act of foolishness. Their lives were characterized by foolishness. Notice that these bridesmaids who thought themselves to be friends to this new couple are in the end called stupid and foolish. This is, as difficult as it might be to hear, this is how Scripture speaks about. This is how God's Word describes Everyone who refuses to be prepared, awake, and alert, and watching for the arrival of the bridegroom. For those who are unprepared for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, Scripture speaks about all who refuse to turn to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, as foolish, as devoid of good wisdom and common sense. Scripture speaks of them as stupid... And while five of the virgins were wise or foolish, the other five were wise, a word that means prudent and sensible, a word that means they possessed good judgment. Notice the contrast, right? There are only two options, wise, foolish, and every single human being who has ever lived falls into one of these two categories, wise or foolish. This dichotomy is one that Christ repeats numerous times in the Gospels in different ways. And he does this because this is one of the most important lessons that every single human being must hear and understand. You are wise or you are foolish and whichever one you are is determined by your response to Jesus Christ. A few examples in the Gospels. First, all human beings are either like the wise man who hears the words of Christ and builds his house on the rock of his word, or like the foolish man who heard Christ's words and didn't do them, which Jesus equated to building your house on the sand, a house that will get destroyed when the wind comes. Two, in chapter 7, we read that people are either healthy trees who bear good fruit or they're diseased trees who bear rotten fruit. We read in chapter 13 that we are going to be either wheat that is gathered into the barn or we will, or weeds that will be bound into bundles to be burned. And finally, at the end of chapter 25, we'll see that we are either sheep to whom Jesus will one day say, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, or goats... Who Jesus will one day denounce saying, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. You see it over and over again. Wise or fool, healthy or diseased, wheat or weeds, sheep or goats, there is no in between. You and I are one or the other. So which are you? There were five wise virgins and five foolish ones. Which are you? And what is it that distinguished the wise virgin from the foolish virgin? Because again, like we said, you couldn't tell just by looking at them. So it must have been something deeper, which Jesus tells us in the next two verses. Starting in verse 3. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps so the foolish took no oil with them while the wise took extra flasks of oil with their lamps so for a bridesmaid who had only one task light the lamp and lead the procession to avoid to leave off to be too lazy too apathetic To prepare for that task was an inexcusable, a careless, neglectful, short-sighted, thoughtless insult to the bridegroom. These five foolish virgins knew that it was a wedding. They knew that the bridegroom might be delayed, that he might come return late. It is, as you know, a big and busy day after all, and yet even with all of this knowledge, they were too foolish and too lazy to do the thing they were supposed to do. See, in this day, to be invited to take part in this wedding feast and this wedding celebration was a great honor. It's still a great honor to be invited to a wedding ceremony. But these five foolish virgins did not cherish or value the invitation in any way. Again, they were told to do one thing, Light the way for the groom. Make sure your torch is ready and oiled to know so that it can burn brightly. But these foolish virgins, they ignored their duty. And in so doing, they insulted the groom and the bride. Revealing that they, the foolish virgins, really aren't any true friend to either. These foolish bridesmaids wanted to enjoy the feast. They wanted all the benefits of the celebration, but they could not be bothered to fulfill the most basic, fundamental responsibility of being a bridesmaid. Make sure your lamp is lit. Too apathetic, too lazy, too inconsiderate to prepare themselves They chose rather to disrespect the groom rather than fulfill the duty of their position. And so they revealed themselves unworthy to take part in or to participate in the wedding feast. So what does this all mean? Symbolically, the oil speaks to the presence of the Holy Spirit in your heart. The life of the Spirit of God in your soul In other words, a true and genuine salvation, not a salvation in name only, but a real, true, decided faith in Jesus Christ. These foolish virgins are representative of anyone, of anyone who calls themselves friends of the bridegroom. Who says, I have some connection to Jesus, but they have no sense of sin, no concern for staying away from it. No, they do not possess any real love for Christ, no desire to honor him, to exalt him, to worship him, to obey him. Life is life, and I want to live my life the way I want to live it, but I also want to join the wedding feast when he returns. That's the foolish virgins those who know nothing of being born again, who couldn't care less about such things as real repentance and faith and grace and holiness. It's those whose profession do not, of faith in Jesus, does not lead them, does not burst out in their life and lead them to make war against the works of the flesh. The Apostle Paul listed them in Galatians 5. The works of the flesh are evident sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Are you fighting against these? A genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ hates the works of the flesh wants nothing to do with them. Now, it is true that we will fail from time to time in our fight. We're not perfect. We're not Jesus. We will fail in our fight. But when we fail, we hate it. We confess it. We don't try to justify it or smooth it over. We turn to Jesus and we say, I have sinned Jesus. Forgive me. I want to live for you. I want my life to burst forth with the fruit of the Spirit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. For those in whom the Spirit resides, you want nothing more than to live a Christ-like, Christ-exalting, Christ-honoring life. But for the foolish virgin, the foolish Christian in name only, about such things there is no concern. And the foolish virgins revealed their lack of love for and concern with the things of the groom. And they illustrate those who, in this life, act in the same manner in regards to the things of Christ. They'd prefer to hold on to and grip on to their sin over faithfully preparing for the return of the groom. These are those who profess Jesus with their mouths but can't be bothered to live for Him or to obey Him. They can't be bothered to prepare, to be watchful, and to live an alert life. In fact, they actually refuse to do so. And if this is you, this reveals potentially a lack of genuine saving faith. And if you do not truly turn to Christ, the consequences of this apathy and laziness and foolishness will turn out to be eternal. But while there were five unprepared, foolish, and careless virgins, look, there were also five wise virgins who took flasks of oil with their lamps. So these are women who are dressed up in the fine, festive clothing of a wedding. And ladies you know that when you dress up in your nicest and finest dress to go celebrate, there aren't many pockets in those dresses. And oftentimes, the accessories you choose to bring with you, your purses and things like that, you kind of get the smallest ones, right? Because it's a hassle to carry around too much when your dress has no pockets. And while you in your life might be able to load your husband up with the things you want to bring, but you can't carry yourself. These five bridesmaids, they don't have any husband in the story. So anything they carry, they gotta carry themselves. Whatever they bring, they've gotta bring it. And one hand, if you notice, is already taken up holding the lamp. So to carry an extra container, an extra vessel of oil with them, it's not a pleasant addition. But wisdom demands preparedness, and preparedness demands sacrifice. These five wise bridesmaids would rather endure the hassle and the inconvenience of carrying these extra flasks rather than be found unprepared. These women were patient and diligent and faithful and at the ready. They revealed their love for the bridegroom by their preparedness. And these illustrate those for us, those who truly believe and are being sanctified by the grace of God. And you know living as a faithful believer in this world brings some hardship sometimes. See, the foolish virgins wanted to carry the, one, the lamp with one hand while leaving the other free to do whatever it is that they wanted to do. Refusing to carry the flask, they picture those who refuse real, true allegiance, soul-saving grace, those who don't care to keep their lanterns burning brightly. They reflect those who profess faith, but that faith never touches or changes or challenges any of their fleshly passions, pursuits, behaviors, goals, and aims in this life. In fact, they represent everyone who would like a little bit of sprinkling, to sprinkle a little bit of Jesus upon a life that you have no intention of giving him lordship over. It's not a true and genuine salvation. It is an in-name only, and it is a no-oil-in-hand existence. And I've always wondered about this. I don't, I just don't get it. Why would you profess Jesus with your mouth only to deny him with your lifestyle? Why profess Jesus when you have no intention of actually following him? Either get in or get out. Do not defame the name of Jesus by some lukewarm existence. Don't live like the vomit in his mouth that he will one day spit out. Instead, like the wise virgins, live in the light of his grace. It is held out to you at this moment. You can truly be saved. Call out to Jesus. When I say call out to Jesus, I mean really call out to Jesus. And so what happens to these wise and foolish virgins? Jesus continued in verse 5. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. So you see, the bridegroom took longer than planned to arrive, and so all ten of the bridesmaids became drowsy and slept. Their eyes grew heavy, and their heads bobbed down like this as they nodded off to sleep. Now, for the wise virgins, this is not a big deal. Even though they slept, they slept prepared with flask of oil in hand for the arrival of the bridegroom. And there's nothing better than a confident sleep. That's the best kind of sleep. But the foolish were not prepared, and so they're sleeping without any oil in hand, unprepared for the arrival of the bridegroom, actually constitutes the height of folly and irresponsibility. They had time to secure flasks of oil for themselves, but they either kept putting it off or were simply uninterested in making the appropriate preparations. And then in verse 6, you hear it. At midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. He has arrived. He is here for his bride. Let the celebrations begin. And then all those virgins, verse 7, rose and trimmed their lamps. So you see, all the virgins woke up at the announcement. They trimmed their wicks into proper form. The word for trimmed here means they adorned and they garnished them. It it, it speaks to their doing everything necessary to ensure that the lamp would burn bright and beautiful for the groom's procession. But as we've already noted, the foolish virgins have a problem. They dressed their lamp up really nice. Like I said all of us can dress ourselves up really nice. But if we don't have the spirit in the heart, it makes no difference. They adorned their lamps, but they had no oil. The very oil they didn't consider, concern themselves with carrying because it was a hindrance to them as they waited for the groom ends up now being the one thing needful. A nice lamp without any oil is useless. And the foolish, verse 8, said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. See, if you are living a life like these foolish virgins, there is going to come a time, a moment for you, as it had for them, when you realize your folly. A day when you realize that you have lacked preparation, that in your heart there is no true saving faith. And in that moment, your, the soul will be the only thing that matters. And oh, what you wouldn't give up in that moment for just a little bit of the oil you refuse to carry in your life. On that day when the groom is on his way and you realize you have no oil, that you aren't truly saved, that will be the only consideration. And all the passions and all the pleasures that you, in this world that you put a higher value on during your life, they'll all pass away. They'll prove to be nothing more than worthless chaff blown by the wind, that which you built your life upon, the sand that you built your life upon, the idolatries that so charmed your soul will all fade on that day. They'll be revealed as the filth that they are. Imagine for a moment the sight of the supremely beautiful and sublime bridegroom coming your way, glorious and wonderful. And in that moment you realize I have no oil. I don't have real faith. I ignored him and I rejected him. And all those things that I chose over him are now shown to be filled and dung. And as you read the parable, notice the groom doesn't ask why. He doesn't say, why do you have no oil? He doesn't give them the opportunity to explain. And why is that? because any excuse they might give at this moment is inconsequential. It is meaningless. There is no reason that anyone can give that will change the situation. There is no defenses, no rationalization, no explanations, no finger pointing to somebody else. None of it will carry any water. The answer, the the question for you is, do you love Jesus or not? That's it. That's the only way to be exonerated and pardoned and forgiven. And these foolish virgins, virgins they had ample time to check their supplies they had ample time to make responsible decisions ample time to check their oil reserves but they didn't and when the bridegroom arrived it was too late if your oil light comes on in your car you're smart enough to immediately get off the road because your engine's about to blow up why can't we do the same for our soul I pray and plead that you wouldn't be living a drowsy, sleep-filled life if you do not have at this moment the oil of salvation for yourself. As Paul will have said to the Corinthian believers, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Do you want to know if you love Jesus? There is a criteria to determine if you do. Jesus said it in his with his own word, in his own words. In John 14, 15, if you love me. You will keep my commands. Examine yourself, because you yourself must call out to Jesus. You must turn to him in faith. As we see in verses 8 and 9, the foolish virgins turned to the wise and said this, Give us some of your oil. For our lamps are going out, but the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourself. You see it, right? Each virgin had to carry her own oil. No one can call out to Christ for you. You got to do it. If your parents believe, that's great, but it's not going to save you. If your friends believe, that's wonderful, but it's not going to save you. Their oil is sufficient for their lamp. You must believe. Your faith must be real and true and vital. See, when the bridegroom's arrival was announced and the foolish virgins recognized their need for oil, the wise gave them the best counsel they could. Go and buy some. But try as they might. Here it is, midnight, and they're frantic as their search might be. The dealers who buy and the dealers who sell, they're all closed at midnight. Nothing they could do. It was too late. They weren't expecting such a scenario. But if we're all honest with ourselves, we do understand. You know deep down that not one of us is guaranteed tomorrow. You aren't guaranteed the next minute. And like it was for these foolish virgins, your opportunity to lay hold of the grace of God might soon be ended. You could die today. You might not be here to worship with us next week. There is no certainty that any of us will be alive at this time next week. So the question is, how are your oil reserves? Because as we see with the foolish virgins in verse 10, while they were going in to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Those who were ready went in with him to the feast. Those who were prepared, those who truly loved and waited for the bridegroom, they were brought into the glorious celebration. This is the marvelous lot and gift of the groom to his prepared guests. That they, that you, if you truly belong to him, are blessed to participate in. However, for those who are not prepared, who are not ready, look at verse 10. To them the door was shut. See the fixed, definitive, unalterable condition these women are now in. They came to him in verse 11 saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. Now you and I politely might, if someone were to beg and plead at our door, let them in. But Jesus doesn't. And he doesn't tell us here how persistently they knocked. He doesn't tell us what the agony of their voices must have sounded like as they begged him and they implored him to let him in. All he tells us was, is that it had no, it didn't change anything. While Christ is indeed merciful and compassionate to everyone who cries out to him, there is coming a day when the door will shut. On that day, eternal destinies are sealed and unchangeable. And those who feast do so rejoicing while those outside the door weep. And we see this finality in verse 12 as the groom answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. On that day, the foolish who convinced themselves that they too would enjoy the wedding feast without packing any oil will hear these most horrible words that any human being can hear. And they'll hear them from the lips of Christ himself. I do not know you. It's an eternal death sentence. And so to all this morning, consider the gains and losses. Are you one who would rather gain the world at the cost of your soul, who cares little at this moment about the door being shut and your soul being sentenced to eternal damnation? If that's you, I don't have much to say to you other than this, unless you truly turn and believe You will not only be an utter fool in the end, but a damned fool." Are you one here this morning who would rather have Jesus than silver or gold? Are you one prepared to hold tightly to your flask of oil in preparedness than believe in his name and live for him and rejoice in the hope of his guaranteed return? For all of you that are found ready, for all of you whose sins have been atoned for by Christ, for everyone here who is clothed in the righteousness of Jesus and renewed by him and in whom resides the Holy Spirit, listen you will see your Lord. The door will never be shut to you. The door will never be shut in the face of a true Christian. Why? Because your Lord Jesus Christ loves you. He gave himself for you. And on the day when the door is shut, all of your pain and all of your misery and all of the hardship and all of the toil and all of the agony you faced in life will all be shut out with it. Oh, what a joy this day will be for Christ's people. So watch, verse 13, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Live wisely. Live the prepared, well-oiled life in light of Christ's inevitable return so that you will not be caught off guard should the shout come in your lifetime. Father, we thank you. We honor you. And we praise you for this repeated warning, this repeated call for every single one of us to examine ourselves, to see if we are in the faith. And I pray right now that anyone who is living in rebellion to the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would not feel comfortable right now, that they would not feel accepted by you right now, but they would feel the weight and the terror of falling into the hands of the living God, apart from grace through faith in your name. For those who are awakened to this morning, to the fact that they have been a Christian in name only and who desire nothing more than to turn to you in true, saving, genuine faith, I pray that your spirit would comfort them and bring them into that saving relationship with Jesus Christ and fill up their soul with joy. And for the believer, the genuine believer who is living a prepared, well-oiled life here this morning, I pray that you would allow them to rest confident in the hope of the wedding feast that they will be a part of. We thank you for all three of these things, knowing that you are good, that you are righteous, you are holy, and we ask all of these things in Christ's name, amen.